Hi, my name is Jill, and the Old Testament reading is found in Genesis 18, 1, 2, 10, and 14. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. And when he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Colleen. The New Testament reading is found in Romans 9, verses 8 through 10 and 16. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. The word of the Lord. Thank you for standing for the gospel. My name is Casey Converse, and the reading is found in John chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. The true light that gives, gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name... He gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The Gospel of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning with open hands extended. We open our hands so that you are free to take the things that we need not to clench onto into our lives. And we open our hands that you would fill us with your spirit, with your love, with your hope, with your redemption. So Father, in this, in this act of obedience, we both release and receive what you have for us this morning. And we pray by faith in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. And um, 
My name is Michelle Anthony, and I am so thrilled to be here with you this morning. This is my first time to the downtown campus, and I am I am passionate about God's people meeting and gathering together. I was I had the privilege of being raised in the church, and I have an affection for the church and and the people of God when they come together and the mission that God has placed us on. And such a big part of that is his word. And I I am passionate about his word and what it means to understand his word and to live his word. And those are the things we'll be talking about this morning. A little bit about me. I've been married 28 years. My husband and I moved here just a little over two years ago. And we, we absolutely love it here in Colorado Springs and Colorado in general. We have two grown children, 23 and 26, and they both live in different states right now. So we are enjoying a little bit of being empty nesters at this season of our life. But we, um, we come together today to open God's word and to understand it. And like I said, I think so often as we open the scriptures, we might value it, we love it, we memorize it, we want to study it, we want to obey it, but we open it up and there's so many peculiar places in here, isn't there? There are, there are things we don't understand. There are mysteries of God on every page. But it is knowable, and it's one of my passions is for us to know God's word so that we can live it. And we have been in the book of Genesis, and we are only thus far into the story of God. And already we have come across some perplexing scenarios and pages and situations in God's story. And so at a cursory reading, we can look at it and say, yeah, it just doesn't make sense, or it's ancient, or it's, it's something that doesn't apply to me today. But I hope that we will have a fresh perspective today of the story that we've been invited into. It's not our story, it's God's story, but he has invited us to step into this story with him and to play a part. We've been grafted into this story by grace. And this story is one in which we see thus far as we look at the life of Abraham that Abraham was chosen by God. And by faith, Abraham put his trust in God, and he left his homeland, and he embarked on a journey with God. We know that his wife, Sarah, is barren. But we also know that God has made a promise to give them a son. And Abraham and Sarah have grown weary in waiting for that promise to be fulfilled. And so they've taken matters into their own hands and they've come up with a plan B. And Sarah had her maidservant, Hagar, have relations with Abraham, which produced the offspring of Ishmael, the son. And now we find ourselves in chapter 18 where Yahweh God comes to Abraham and Sarah and he reiterates the original plan. And he gives confidence and hope in that the original plan will prevail. And I don't know about you, but I find myself already in that storyline. And maybe you do too. Because I have been chosen by God. He has chosen me to play a part in his story. He's grafted me in by grace and by faith. I left my old life and I chose by faith to put my trust in God and to embark on this journey with him. 
But then I discover my own barrenness in so many areas of my life. And I grow weary in waiting for God to complete his perfect will in me and his plan in me. And so I take matters into my own hands and I substitute the original plan for a plan B. And then God in his mercy and his grace comes to me and he reiterates the original plan. And he gets me back on course to fulfill the plot in which he's writing in my life. Do you see yourself in that story? Because I often do. And so that's where we are in Genesis. And starting in chapter 18 with verse 1, the word says that the Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre, which he was sitting under at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. And then Abraham looked up and saw three of them standing nearby. And when he saw these men, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them, and he bowed low to the ground. Now, I guess the first thing that I come to, even when I read the first two verses, is this idea that his ways are not our ways. God's ways are not our ways. Already in verse 1, it says that the Lord appeared to Abraham. And the word that's used there, Lord, is the word Yahweh. It's the Hebrew word that is reserved for God himself. In fact, this word was so special that the Hebrew authors don't put any of the vowels in it. They don't speak it. They don't say it. The word Yahweh was revered. It was for God himself. And his ways are not our ways because I don't understand how God himself came and met with Abraham. But many people believe that this is what is considered a theophany in scripture. It's a physical manifestation of God in the Old Testament, the second person of the Trinity that would soon become and embody the body of Jesus in the New Testament. But we know that God took on physical manifestations and met directly with his people throughout the Old Testament. And while that's mysterious and even peculiar, we know that it's true. And so the fact of the matter is that God himself comes to meet with Abraham and Sarah. And we know in the next verse that there were three of them. So perhaps this has been speculated by theologians that those are accompanying angels who are escorting Yahweh God. Now, we aren't given many more details other than that, but we know that God is meeting and we know that his ways are not always our ways. And as we get through and we walk through the rest of the story, we we see that... Abraham says to them, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. And so Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three sayas of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. And then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to the servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared, and he set it before them while they sat under the tree. Where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. Well, there in the tent, he said. And then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. 
Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? And then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, and so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, Yes, you did laugh. I love it when God is just honest, speaking the truth and love over our lives. When I, when I look at the rest of the chapter and I think of this idea that his ways are not our ways, I am reminded about what Randy Frizzee once said. He said that when we are looking at scripture, we have to look at scripture with almost a dual lens because the one lens allows us to see what is called the lower story of our life. These are the the daily things that you and I find ourselves in. The going to work, the sleeping, the eating, the breathing, the the playing, the raising of our children, all the details of our lower story life, which includes the good and the bad, right? And as we look at scripture, we can also see the lower story plot line of thousands of individuals. And it's tempting for us to not only look at our lives, but also the lives of those in scripture just from that one lens. And we are tempted to look at scripture and say, it's just a collection of stories about many people's lives where God is intervening to help them out. And nothing could be further from the truth because the lower story is where we find ourselves in our daily lives. But he says that there's also another storyline, and that's the upper storyline. This is the storyline that God has been writing and will complete in writing. It's unchanging and it's independent of the lower storyline of your life and those that are in Scripture. When we look at the scriptures from the upper storyline, it starts to make a little bit more sense than when we're looking at it from the lower storyline. When I look at the details of the lower story, they just don't make sense. But when I look at them from an upper storyline, there is one main character and there is one plot. The main character is God himself. You and I are supporting actors and actresses, just as many of the people in Scripture are. But there's one plot, and the plot throughout all of Scripture on every page is the plot of redemption. The story of God is a story of redemption. And so when I simply look at all the narrative events of my lower story or somebody else's, I don't see a story of redemption until I I cast my eyes upward. And I see the big picture of what God is accomplishing in and through us. And see, this takes an enormous amount of faith to to take our eyes from looking down and to cast our eyes upward. It takes a lot of faith. Consider Abraham and Sarah. The promise given to them that they would have a son was given in chapter 12 of Genesis. It's in chapter 21 where that son is actually born. Nine simple chapters. It took me 20 minutes to read. But in reality, from the promise given to the promise given in flesh was 25 
years. 25 years. You see, God's ways are not our ways. I would never make a promise to you and then 25 years later fulfill it. You would think I was crazy. So what is it that God is accomplishing in those 25 years? I think it's best if you pause right now and think of your life and where you were 25 years ago. Some of you weren't even born. Where were you 25 years ago? 25 years ago, I was a very young mom raising my daughter who was one years old. My son had not even been born yet. She hadn't even said one word. I was trying to figure out this whole parenting thing. And now she is 26 years old, and she's in Oklahoma studying for her doctorate. Wow. A lot has happened in 25 years. And sometimes when we are just reading through Scripture at the lower story, we think, oh, yeah, the promise was given, and then the son was given, and so what's the big deal? And the big deal is that it took 25 years. His ways are not our ways. In fact, when I also look at this passage, I see the word hurried quite a bit. And his ways are not our ways because we are hurried and God is not. We are hurried, but God is not. In in chapter 18, we hear in verse 2 that Abraham looked up and saw the three men, and when he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of the tent to meet them. And then in verse 6, Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seahs of the finest flour. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf, and he gave it to the servant who hurried to prepare it. At one glance, you can say, well, they were trying to be hospitable, and that was wonderful that they were, they were rushing to be hospitable. But on the other hand, it's just the way we are. We are in a hurry. We pray prayers, and we want answers right now. We, we think, gosh, it's been 24 hours since I prayed that prayer. Some of, of you have been praying for 25 years for the realization of things that God had made promises to you. And it's so easy in that time of us being hurried and God not to doubt and to submit a plan B instead. I think when we look at the lower narrative of our life and we become fixated on those details. We miss out on the grand redemptive story that God is writing. In fact, if you and I were to be given a permission slip to sign off on things in our lives, things in our spouse's lives, things in our children's lives or our parents' lives, we would never sign those permission slips from God. I think it's the reason why he doesn't give us permission slips and he doesn't ask for it. One such time in my own life that's very personal to me, it's a permission slip I would have never signed off on, happened on Christmas Eve 2011. My husband and I were living in a very remote area up in the mountains, two hours away from civilization. There weren't even cell phones. And my children were coming up for Christmas. So the Christmas dinner was made, the presents were wrapped, and they were under the tree, and my, my children arrived, and I couldn't have been happier. The children saw on the side of our house was a very large slope that had a whole 
um, bunch of snow, right? And this just made the perfect intertube run, right? So um, my kids got the inner tubes and they wanted to go down the slope a few times before Christmas dinner. And it was starting to get dark. So I said, okay, just a few runs. And so we went down a few runs, and because it was dusk, it was already pretty icy. And so I said, okay, this is the last run. And I got to the top of of the hill, and I got into my inner tube. And as I was coming down the hill, my inner tube turned around, and I was going down backwards. And I couldn't see where I was going, and my inner tube hit a large mound of ice, and it launched me and my inner tube in the air. And when I came down, I came down directly on my head as if I were diving into a swimming pool. And as I tumbled down the mountain, I remember in that moment of thinking, you, you don't survive something like this because I just heard everything in this region shatter. And maybe adrenaline or shock or whatever it was, as soon as I, I landed, I stood up. And when I stood up, my neck fell down because I had broken my neck. Um, just by reaction, I took my head and I put it up like this. And I looked at my husband and I said, we need to get to a hospital immediately. We were still two hours away. So in the back of his truck, um, we, we drove an hour to which we met the ambulance and then the ambulance took me another hour to a very, very small regional hospital. There was only one doctor on duty. He was obviously the one who drew the short straw that Christmas Eve. And so when we arrived there to this doctor, um, I found out that the one doctor on duty was a gynecologist. <laughs> so that was good. Bless his heart. And... <clears throat> He didn't especially know what to do with me, except he took me in to give me an MRI. And as I was waiting in my um, hospital bed, pretty bound up so I couldn't move at all, he rushed in completely beside himself, grabbing my feet and asking, can you feel your legs? Can you move your feet? Of which I could. I was in an enormous amount of pain, but I could move my legs and feet. And he, he simply said, as I look at the MRI results, you don't have a C2, the vertebrae here. It's absolutely gone. It's shattered. And he said, it's absolutely impossible that you're alive or that you can move your legs and feel them. From there, it gets a little blurry, but I was put into a helicopter and I was flown to a, another hospital where there was a neurosurgeon there. And I underwent on Christmas Day six hours of surgery where the neurosurgeon said that he took out shards of bone out of my neck and near my spinal column. And then he rebuilt a C2 and hardwired it all up and put me back together. The next morning, the neurosurgeon said, this is absolutely incomprehensible. This doesn't make sense. It's a miracle. And while I'm so grateful for that, I would never have signed off on that permission slip. That night and those days were very traumatizing for me and my family. But what has happened since, really in the four and a half years since that accident, is that just from what took place and how he rebuilt me, I'm just in an enormous amount of pain every single day. When I look at the lower story of my life, I think it's traumatic and I live with pain every day. 
But if I look at the upper story and I ask, okay, God, from your perspective of redemption, how are you redeeming this story? How are you using me in your story of redemption? I have found a few things to be true about that pain. And the first one is that we are forgetful people. And without this pain every single day, I know that I would be susceptible to forgetting what God did that night, how he miraculously spared my life and held me in his hands, how he miraculously kept me from dying, how he rebuilt me, how he put the right people in the right places, I would forget. And every day when I wake up with that pain, it causes me to remember and to celebrate. Number two, this pain attaches my heart to other people who are in pain. Because pain is pain, whether it's physical or emotional or mental, pain is pain. I have new pastoral eyes to see pain in other people, and I'm far more attentive and sensitive to that pain in other people. And it's just simply made me a better minister. And the third way that this pain has been redemptive in my life is that I know that he didn't just spare me from death, he also saved me for life. And I get to wake up every day and say, okay, God, what is the life that you want me to live today? Because I'm obviously here for a reason. If I just look at the lower story, then I'm focusing on the pain. If I look at the upper story, I see how he is redeeming that and changing me because of it. I would have never signed off on the permission slip, but I'm so glad he didn't ask me. The second thing, not only are his ways not our ways, the second one is that his power is neither enhanced nor thwarted by our success or failure. His power is is not enhanced because of your success or my success in a situation. All the gifts that we bring to the table or our talents or our perseverance or any of that. His power is not enhanced. It's complete. It's perfect as it is. But neither is his power thwarted by our failures and our mistakes and our poor decisions. See, that's... That's a beautiful story of redemption right there. To know that no matter what, his power is perfect. I think that there is a temptation in all of us to do what Abraham and Sarah did, to help God out. We look at the situation, we see that God is tearing, we see that he's not intervening, he seems silent, he seems indifferent to our sufferings or our pleas, and so we step in to help him out, and I think there's a temptation for all of us to do the plan B version. And then we look at Genesis chapter 10, and Genesis chapter 18, verse 10, and it says that one of them said to Abraham, I will surely return to you this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. You know what's beautiful about this? Is that Yahweh God is reinstating the promise, not the problem. God reinstates his promise in our life, he doesn't bring up the problem of our mistakes and our failures. Because if it were me, and, and I had found Abraham that day, I, I think I would have said, Abraham, 
You've been chosen by God. You're the one in whom he's going to bless all the nations. You're like the chosen guy. And he made a promise to you, and you started doubting, and, and now you, you have this son, Ishmael, through Hagar. What were you thinking? Oh, my gosh. And now we have Ishmael, and he won't be despised. He's going to be given a blessing and an inheritance as well. And so now there's a whole nation of people through Ishmael because of your decision. I mean, you really just blew it. But all right, I'll make it okay. But I think that's how I would have said it. I would have focused on the problem. Thanks for letting me point you out there. Um, I would have focused on the problem, but God doesn't do that. He comes and he just reiterates the promise. I will come back again this time next year and Sarah will have a son. It's not through Hagar. It's not through somebody else. It's Sarah will have a son. And the focus is not on our failures of what they decided to do with the plan B. The focus is not on the support God didn't say, hey, thanks for helping me out. I didn't know how I was going to get you a son. So great idea with Hagar. Neither our successes nor our failures either enhance nor thwart the power of God. And then he says this in verse 14. He comes and says, is anything, anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I think this is a rather interesting situation we find ourselves in because when the promise was made in chapter 12, Sarah, we know, was barren. And at that point in the narrative, she would have been 65 years old. So we would say it's improbable that Sarah is going to give Abraham a son. That's improbable. With God tarrying 25 years, she'll be 90 years old when she has Isaac. Now it's impossible. With all of our technology, even as a modern reader, when we read this, that's impossible for a 90-year-old woman to have a son. And so God takes us on a journey of tarrying to prove that his power is ultimate, and that nothing, nothing is impossible for God. I pose that question to you this morning. Do you believe that? Do you believe that nothing is impossible? When I ask you, is anything too hard for the Lord, do you believe that? That no, nothing Nothing is too difficult. Or do you say, Michelle, you don't understand the mess that I have made out of our finances. There's there's just absolutely no way to get out of it. Or Michelle, you don't understand the decisions that I have made have absolutely ruined my marriage. There's no hope. Or Michelle, you don't understand the way that we raised our children. it's, It's just, it's hopeless now. But nothing is impossible to God. And we put our hope in that upper story, not the narrative that we can see that's been, been being written right now in the day-to-day events of our life. And you might say, well, that's not true because my wife 
had cancer. And we prayed and we claimed nothing is impossible to the Lord. And we had godly people surrounding us. And they believed with us that nothing is impossible for the Lord. And we knew he was going to heal her. And yet he didn't. And she died. And that's when I say we have to refer back to point number one. His ways are not our ways. And there are, there's mystery and things that we don't understand as we embark on this journey, but that's why it's called a journey of faith. We have to put our faith in a God who is good, who a God who is redeeming, a God who has promised us that he will love us until the end of the age and never leave us. And it's his ways are not our ways, and so I don't understand why some of the events of our lower storyline happen, but I put my faith and my hope in the upper storyline of redemption. And that's what brings us to the last point, which is his plan of redemption remains no matter what. His plan of redemption remains no matter what. Now, Redemption is written on every single page of this story if we read it from the upper story line. If we don't, we fail to see where redemption is being written, and such might happen as we look at the rest of the chapter, verses 16 and on. Two of the men that are visiting, perhaps the angels, the escorts, go down to Sodom, and Yahweh remains with Abraham, and he starts to bring him into what he's about to do, the judgment that he's about to bring on Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Abraham is perplexed. He's wrestling with God, like, why would you destroy righteous people alongside of the wicked people? And so he starts to bargain with God. He says, okay, so God, if we find... 50 righteous people in that city, will you spare it? And God says, yes, if we find 50, I'll spare it. And it's almost as if Abraham is calculating up the righteous people that he knows down there. And he's like, all right, all right. What about, what about if you find 45? If we find 45 people, will you spare it? And God says, yes, I'll spare it for the sake of 45. And then Abraham says, what about 30? 30, will you, will you spare it for 30? And yes, I will spare it for 30. Well, what about 20? Would you spare it for 20 righteous people? And God says, yes, I'll spare it for 20 righteous people. And then Abraham says, Lord, what about 10? If there were just 10 righteous people, would you spare that city for the sake of 10? And God says, yes, for the sake of 10, I will spare it. There's redemption on every single page in this story. And yet as we flip the page and we go to the next chapter, we know that not ten were even found. It was only four. Lot and his family were the ones that were spared and redeemed out of the destruction. And so at a first glance, if we're just looking at this from a lower story narrative, we say, that's so cruel. God goes in and destroys a whole city. Where's redemption in that? But when we look at it from his heartbeat of saying, yes, I will redeem, I will redeem, I will redeem, for those who say yes and choose to walk with me, and he redeems the four out, this is a story of redemption. And this is the story that's been written since the beginning of time. When, a when Adam and Eve were in the garden and they chose to sin against God while they were being handed out their consequences, at that very moment, God said, I will send a redeemer who will have victory over this sin. 
And then as we go through the pages of the Old Testament, we see how the lineage in which the promise was made through Abraham's offspring would actually be the family line, the lineage that would bring us the Messiah. And then it's the seed of Abraham and his lineage is preserved over and over again through all the obstacles, through all the attempts of the enemy to destroy the plan of redemption and the lineage and the heritage. And then we we see the prophets who come alongside and they prophesy the coming of this Redeemer over and over and over again until we open the, the, the Bible to the New Testament. And the promise is presented in the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the one who was promised from long ago is now presented in an obscure little town of Bethlehem. And as he, as he grew up and he lived his life, he showed us, modeled for us what it means to live in relationship with God and others. And then he died. The very reason that he came to earth in the first place, he died. And when he died, his death satisfied the debt of sin. For the wages, the payment of sin is death. And not only the payment of death did he have victory over, when he rose again from the dead, his resurrection conquered death itself. So now conquering sin and death, he ascends back into heaven, and when he does, he leaves us his Holy Spirit, who will be the very one to empower us to do all the things that he's taught us to do until he comes again. And yes, he does come again, and this time not shrouded in his humanity, but coming forth in all of his glory, declaring he is King of kings and Lord of lords forever. And he will judge those who have rejected him, but he will draw unto him those who have received him, who have believed and received him, the promise. And we will live forever, for all of eternity, with him in perfect relationship, the way that it was always intended to be. You see, that is the upper story. And it's why God can write the last chapter of the story before you and I have even played our parts. Because it will happen and it will prevail. So this is my aha thus far in the story, is that my brokenness, And the brokenness of my family does not thwart the redemptive plan of God. But I'm invited to play a part in this story. I'm invited to play a part. And I pick up my script every day and I get to play it as written. And it's the as written part that is so difficult for us. Because we compare our scripts with others. And we think, she got a better part than I did. Or he has more lines than I do. Or he doesn't seem to have as many difficult clauses in his as mine do. And we're tempted to pick up the pen and to either omit or add to the story. And yet, we cannot because it's not our story. We play a part. And so our only response to this story is to believe it and then receive it. Our choice is to believe and receive. Romans 3 says that Abraham believed, and then it was reckoned to him as righteousness. 
And Romans 4, 24 through 25 says, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness to us, for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. We are justified before a holy God. Max Lucado summed it up like this. He said, you come before the judgment seat of God, full of all of your failures and mistakes. And because of his justice, he can't dismiss your sin, but because of his love, he can't dismiss you. So in an act that stunned the heavens, he gave himself and died on the cross. And now his justice and his love are equally honored, and you, his beloved creation, are forgiven. Would you bow your heads with me? I want to give you this time just to consider this story, the upper story, and maybe the places where you have tried to step in to create plan B's, Maybe the places where you have grown weary and now you, you doubt and your heart has grown cold toward the things of the Lord because you feel that he has disappointed you or failed you. This is a time just to confess that. And maybe this is also the first time that you actually have chosen to believe and to receive and to step into this storyline, to be grafted into the upper story by grace and mercy of our Heavenly Father. Use this time just to speak with him and to listen to his voice.